Welcome, welcome. This is Keisha and the White Boy. I am your host, Ryan, the White Boy Dinger, and I am joined here via Skype by my smart and talented co-host. She is a script writing, web series producing, podcasting queen. She is the one and only Shakisha Williams. What's up, people? How are you today? <laughs> You're feeling a little musical today, huh? A little bit. <laughs> so, Shakisha, I know it's going to come up a little bit later on because, you know, we're not going to be able to not talk about the coronavirus. But for right now, I am determined to talk about something other than the coronavirus on today's intro. So you're familiar with the game Would You Rather, right? Yes. Okay. So I, I think a lot of people are. So for the rest of your life, would you rather only be able to use a fork with no spoon or only be able to use a spoon with no fork? Oh, that's a toughie because if you have a spoon, you can get all of your liquids, you can hunter-gather, you can do a lot with a spoon. But with a fork, I can also use it as a weapon because obviously the world has gone haywire if we don't have spoons. <laughs> and or, so I would need something with something like a little stick on the end. Yeah. Like a little like, sh- shiv. So I like that your response is uh, not based so much on like food concerns, like how is this going to work mechanically with eating, but what would be better for stabbing people or shanking people in uh, our current apocalyptic state? I'm just saying, when you're down to, like, do I take a spoon or a knife, and you're in that spoon or, I mean, spoon of fork, I mean, spoon of fork line, you gotta go with fork, man. Gotta yeah, go with I, fork. I don't know. I, I kind of was thinking, so, like, on this would you rather, it's not clear whether you can use a knife or not, but I'm going to pretend that you can, just yeah. to your point, so that you have, it's only, it's only forks and spoons that are left. All the knives have vanished. It's like... Um, you know, one of those pod people movies where suddenly just like the knives have completely disappeared. They've, they've been right. taken. Yes. Um, so it's only forks and only spoons. And I was kind of thinking like, I really, really like soup a lot and soup would be completely out with a fork. Um, not, cereal- really. not really because <clears throat> broth you can sip directly from the bowl. That's true. That is a good point. Mm, now you got me thinking a little bit. That's it. That is true. Yeah. Um, what do you think would be better for like cutting though? Like I guess because like Before, definitely you'd have to repurpose the um, spoon and use like kind of sh- like shave down the handle in order to like cut. But with a fork, you know, you've had a tender piece of steak and you could kind of yeah. you know you're not at the restaurant. You're at home. So you just, or a tender piece of chicken breast, and you just go, you know what, I'm going to slice it with this, you know, I'm not going to be cute about it. I'm just going to take the fork and do my thing. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm wondering, though, like, I think you could probably do that with a spoon also. Like, when you think about the tender piece of, of meat with yeah. the fork, like, the spoon probably could work with that motion also, don't you think? I'm going to challenge you tonight, right? I'm going to stick with my fork, but I'm going <laughs> to challenge you tonight to have, like, a really great dinner. I'm I'm just saying I'm thinking about it I'm thinking about it I I will admit I didn't think about the being able to like defend yourself angle which is important is important but I mean there are other things like you know I got a baseball bat around here somewhere in my apartment a bit Um, all right come on I'm just thinking about it you know you know but uh yeah so that was nice to actually uh take a break and think about something stupid because, uh, you know, and I think with as crazy as things are right now, all of us are yearning for a return to simpler times when our most chief concerns were, what would you rather have for the rest of your life? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so we're going to keep that theme going today and try to return to simpler times. On our main segment, Shakish and I are going to share our memories of family gatherings and see some of the ways in which a black Jehovah's Witnesses childhood differed from a white Roman Catholics. I'm actually really excited about this conversation and curious what you're uh, what you're going to bring to the table for it, Shakisha. 
I can't wait to hear what you've got to say. <laughs> Before that, we're going to finally tackle dedicated listener William Jensen's mailbag question and share our th- thoughts on the film Green Book. But first, inevitably, we must talk about the coronavirus. Some, there's been a lot of news this week. And on that note, we've got a particularly enraging story. It's time for WTF. So, Shikisha, as I said in the intro, this story is quite enraging. Um, I was browsing Twitter the other day, and I saw a tweet that thread from John Marshall uh, at Josh, or excuse me, Josh Marshall uh, at Josh TPM. Um, TPM is a talking point. It is talking points memo, which is a um, uh, a news organization. Um, but Josh is the founder of TPM and uh, is actually a Polk Award winner. So he's a he's a well-known journalist. And um, so he tweeted on Friday, April 3rd, that <clears throat> he says, reporting tonight, it's clear that there are huge, huge fortunes being made now on, on the COVID crisis. We keep hearing that states and cities are having to bid against each other to purchase life-saving goods. But who are the counting counterparties? Those folks have a product in short supply and customers who are willing to pay anything because they need it to prevent residents of their dying the u.s doing airlifts to bring supplies from abroad to private or for private contractors is part of this contractors is part of this but only one part so basically what josh is is uh, suggesting here is that uh he's now starting to hear through his sources that essentially um it's it's fair to suspect that perhaps the trump administration he who shall not be named and his family are uh profiting on selling PPE, uh, things that states need right now to fight the coronavirus, selling these these uh, products to them um, rather than just dispersing them where the need is. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you really think about that, uh, pretty enraging, like I said. Uh, I mean, there's not any proof yet that Trump and his family are making money on off of this, but now it's starting to... Uh, look like it might be the case. And actually, uh, Governor Cuomo talked about this, uh, Andrew Cuomo here in New York State, and uh, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan have both discussed this idea at press conferences, saying that like uh, they're needing to bid on supplies as if it were like eBay, where like New York will put in a bid, and then California does, and then Florida yeah. steps in, and then Michigan steps in, and then FEMA is also somehow bidding on products in this way. Um, when you see all these conditions, it starts to become, become clear when, you, when we know what we know about he who shall not be named and his family and this administration that mm-hmm. uh, likely they are probably getting kickbacks on this from uh, the distributors. More than likely. Um, I was actually watching MSNBC this morning, and um, the governor, Washington's governor, Jay Inslee, was talking about, you know, the the idea. You know, he was mostly discussing um, the uh, massive kind of shutdown of the state, um, the stay-in orders, um, stay-at-home yeah. orders. And... Um, there was a Republican governor, and I apologize, I believe he was um, either Arizona, I want to say he was Arizona, uh, the Arizona governor, but I may be incorrect, I'll check. But anyway, he, um, the question was asked, um, what of this bidding between the states? And the, the Republican governor's response was, well, it's the, the times that we're living in, you know, it's, you know, the federal government is just kind of the wall. Like, if anything happens, then they can step in. And um, Governor Inslee just flat out said, this is asinine. I can't imagine, uh, I can't imagine, you know, any president like Theodore Roosevelt or one of the earlier presidents saying to Connecticut, all right, well, good luck with your shipbuilding efforts. Yeah. Call me if you need me. You know, like. Yeah. Kushner. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I don't, like, I don't even know what what he's, I don't, listen, that was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen in my life. Where he said, like, we have a federal supply, and, like, that doesn't mean that it's there for the states. What What the hell? What the fuck are you talking about? What do you mean? What do you mean? 
mean by that? It's like it's like if I bought like a um a cabinet of snacks, you know, honey buns and chips and you know juice boxes for the kids, and I go, listen, just because they're up there with cartoon characters on it doesn't mean they're for you. Like, what do you what do you? Yeah, and like about? you know, it's the not most a... absolute ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, and not only uh you know Trump has basically already admitted to extorting governors for supplies. He basically said in one of his press briefings uh, that he just wanted you know, governors to be more grateful to him for supplies and stuff. So he's actually already admitted that he's extorting governors. It's not really a huge stretch of the imagination to take it a step further and go, well, he's he's also making money on, on sending these out. When you're hearing about states bidding against each other and all that, knowing how scummy he is, how scummy he has been his entire life, it's really not a far stretch of the imagination. But what is particularly aggravating is you have states that are bidding against one another for needed supplies, supplies that will, without exaggeration, save lives, save American lives. Uh, and then meanwhile, uh, The Intercept reported on April 5th, so, uh, or I'm sorry, they reported on April 4th that uh, foreign shipments detailed in government are, you know, that Americans, basically what's happening is uh, the U.S. is sending supplies overseas also. And they, yes. they The Intercept wrote, uh, the foreign shipments detailed in dozens of govern government records show exports to other hotspots where the pandemic has spread, including East Asia and Europe. And, you know, they go on to say American hospitals around the country are now running low on these very supplies. So not only do you have states bidding against each other for the supplies that exist here in the United States. You have States. our countries outsourcing our, our supplies to other nations. You know, I almost, like... The, the, my first thought when I hear that is Trump ran on America first, right? That was his whole thing. I don't agree with that. I'm sure you don't, Shakisha. Like that, that was like I, that's not the point here. But I didn't agree with that phrase when he was running on it. I think it's absolute bullshit. But when you take that phrase and what it's supposed to mean, here is one of the very few contexts where America first would actually make sense. Right. You know maintaining our medical supplies and sending them to our states rather than sending them overseas. And he's still fucking that up. He has absolutely no empathy, no real, his leadership abilities are based on his own ego. And it's a very frightening thing because the one thing we've always come to, I was, um, so I, for the listeners who have listened for us for our past 17 episodes, no, you and I have, you know, we watch Netflix. And West Wing popped up into my kind of suggestion feed. I'm like, that's a fairy tale. Having people who are completely immersed in government, who are completely immersed in people's lives and the livelihoods of the citizens and really concerned with people is not even something on this administration's radar. I am completely... I am, for all intents and purposes, not a Republican. I do not support this current president. However, I am the person who there have been times when things he has said, even from the left, I'm like, that's not what he said. <laughs> right, but right. I get why you're angry about him, period. Like, he's, he's given us a lot of reason to not like him. But that was, that's not what that meant. So, again, I'm I'm not biased in a way that I, like, if he said something smart, I go, okay, I can get on board with that. Mm -hmm. This man, time and again, time and again, time and again has proven that he is not stable, he has no empathy, and he is not suited for this job. You put your son-in-law in charge as opposed to some, listen. Let's just say, for instance, if we gave Ben Carson a cup of coffee, right, woke mm -hmm. his ass up, put him on the task force, at least he's a freaking doctor. <laughs> at least, he's a yes. doctor. Like, if nothing else, he knows other doctors. Like, that's a sound. Like, okay, we're moving Ben Carson from HUD. We're going to put him here on the task force for now. We're going to switch things up a little bit. But he's now taking information and, you like, there, the the whole idea that you would say that nurses and 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 um, healthcare staff is stealing supplies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so, low. 
Like, what are you, like, you just said that? Like, you just say things, and then people glob on. Um, and now, you know, the, re, it, the, the, the new narrative was, I, I knew this was happening. I knew this a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I was distracted because of the impeachment. No, you weren't distracted because of the, impeachment. Yeah. You were distracted because you were playing golf. Every single week. Yeah, he was he was distracted. Three years. Distracted by the impeachment hearings that he wasn't attending. Right, right. You threw me off. Like I had to. I wasn't able to watch Fox on time. I had to watch the re-recordings because I had long days worrying about. No, you weren't. You don't care. And I, I think a lot of us have the feeling of frustration that what is it that we can do? Like, what can we do? It feels like there's going to be a huge financial crisis and it has everything to do with us not like what if we were smart about it and started making things again like right now is a really good time to Mm -hmm. work making it even if you had to say okay well we're going to manufacture stuff in this and the 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 sewers you have to sew at home but like come on let's can can we think outside of the box can we do something different so the fact is there's so many i'm saying all this and i kind of got sidetracked but the point is this is just another level of incompetence. Mm-hmm. Another oh, yeah. level of incompetence. No, I wouldn't say you got sidetracked at all. I think what you were saying is is uh, valid and like is in reaction to just more absolute unbelievable bullshit that's happening here. And like what you said is true. Like, of course, right now while the while the pandemic's going on, you can't have people working. But why don't we start thinking about once this is over, like some infrastructure project, uh, yeah. you know, projects that can start to occur. Like that, the refusal to start investing in 21st century America. You know, like our roads are falling apart. There's so many. Look at the transit system here in New York. I mean, there are so many things that I can think of that we can start investing in as a nation to start improving life in, here in the United States. That just doesn't happen because of outright greed. And now that greed has been taken to a point where you have states bidding against one another so that at least Trump's contractor friends can get paid on this. And very likely he and his family himself can get paid. It's it's right. Yeah, I haven't haven't, um, seen anywhere in the ether where we could find the stimulus, the 2020 stimulus package um, deal or the kind of the written pieces. And I'm so interested in actually reading that. Um, according to reports, Trump's businesses can't profit. Like if you're in a politics, you can't profit. But yeah, let's of course. keep all the way 100. I ha- I'm a business owner. I can start another business and, and it not be like I, there's ways around that. It's not a hard fast. Ooh, so. Well, he hasn't. He hasn't even divested himself from his businesses. Right. Like that is still, like he is. He is openly breaking the law, and that's why, like, we can really go down the rabbit hole on this if you want. We're we're a little over on time, but yeah, it's uh yeah yeah. yeah. And just, you know uh, what? I just want to you know for those of us who you know, are frustrated for those of us who are scared and for those of us who are, you know, trying to figure out our way past this, because some of us have lost friends and family members to coronavirus. So there's a real human element to all of this. Like our, you know, our take is this take, but, you know, the humanity of it is people are scared. You know, I went food shopping Saturday, Saturday morning. And when I went, the shelves were, like, really bare. So there are real issues that are kind of trickling down with all of this, food shortages, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of um, things that, you know, rubbing alcohol, hand sanitizer, cleaning utensils, bleach, things that are being recommended for us to keep ourselves safe and our homes and families clean are now not available to us. And masks are at you know, it, not only for the healthcare industry, which sorely needs it, but the everyday average people. So there's a big human element to it. And um, I'm going to take the lead and post some stuff on Facebook for, you know, any articles I see on how to make your own face mask or how to do things that, you know, can can help you in this really weird time. You know, we're, Ryan and I stand behind all of you and, you know, we're, we're looking at coming out on the other side of this. But until then, Shakisha, Whoa. all you can say is... Ah, quack, quack, quack.
What the fuck? Oh man, it's, uh, it's infuriating. It really is. The the greed is almost incomprehensible sometimes. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's enough yelling <laughs> about coronavirus for today. I'm sure we'll have plenty more to talk about as this thing goes on. Okay. A few weeks ago, yes, unfortunately, I agree. Uh, a few weeks ago, dedicated listener William Jensen reached out to us and asked us to share our thoughts on the 2018 film Green Book. Uh, Shakisha, I watched Green Book on an airplane about six months ago, uh, mm-hmm. but you watched it more recently. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, I'm just curious, like, what, what did you think? I, I read through the plot as, as a refresher this morning, but I'm curious what your thoughts were as you went through it. Actually, it was it was a pretty good movie, actually. I like the, the character, the elegance of um, uh, the main character... Um, And let me just read for those of you. I'm going to read the synopsis of what it is for those folks who did not have an opportunity to see Green Book. uh, Dr. Don Shirley is a world-class African-American pianist who is about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South in 1962. In need of a driver and protection, Shirley recruits Tony Lip, a tough-talking bouncer from an Italian-American neighborhood in the Bronx. Despite their differences, the two men soon develop an unexpected bond while confronting racism and danger in an era of segregation. So, Shirley, Don Shirley is played by uh, Mahershala Ali, and Tony Lip is played by, why do I keep saying Vigo Mortensen. Thank you. I always call him Giovanni Ribisi, and that is completely <laughs> I, I was like, no, that's not it. Um, and I had such a crush on Vigo back in the day, but anywho, um, he did a really good job. I really enjoyed watching, um, the film in one respect. It reminds me a lot of what we're trying to do here at Shakisha and the Whiteboard. Um, Oh, does that make Tony Lip? Not, uh, not Tony Lip, just the idea of two (laughs) people who are in kind of getting to know one another. Yeah. And the getting to know one another breaks down a bunch of barriers. Yeah, from so, that perspective. Right. So the, the 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 movie actually had some controversy around it. Um, I guess, I guess mainly because it won Best Picture, and people felt that there were other films that came out uh, with you know um, who, who were made by black directors or who featured uh, more people of color in the cast that were better and more deserving. Um, it, it sort of got a lot of the same flack that Driving Miss Daisy. Did, yeah. uh, which and William's question actually came on the back of um, drunk on writing's question about driving Miss Daisy. Um, I actually kind of thought that a little like some of the controversy was a bit overblown. Mm-hmm. Like it, I didn't really get uh, like white savior from it so much. I guess there was a little bit of that, but honestly, I kind of thought that it was both individuals sort of learning from one another in a lot of ways. I think, uh, so I think the idea of Tony as kind of this working class guy, um, there was, there's a scene in the movie where he's playing like some quote unquote black music and Don Shirley, who's this, this refined classic pianist who Mm -hmm. is not of anything that would be, uh, black culture related. He's not that guy at all. Um, and Tony's like, you don't know your own people's music? Like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm blacker than you. <laughs> like, you know what? You who? Like, what was wrong with you? Um, in, in, that, in that, you know, like, Bronx. And then he also kind of said, well, you know, he they, there was this uh, another scene where they get into, a, a like, an altercation with some folks at a bar. And, you know, Tony Lip is, is like, well, you know, I can't believe, you know, that happened to you or whatever. He was like, well, do you think it would be any differently if I came to your neighborhood? Like, this is Don Shirley saying that to him. Yeah. And, you know, really posing these questions to this guy who has a very matter-of-fact approach to life. You know, he's all about his gun in his hands. He's quick with his hands. He's quick to get into <laughs> it. He, he said he, he's a self-proclaimed bullshit artist. You know, all of that. Um, and to have this man of refinement be so different from him. Like, he wasn't, you know, with a white, you know, pianist. He was with this black guy who literally sat on a throne when he met him. (laughs) When Tony Lip walked into the party (laughs) above 
you know, Carnegie Hall, he was sitting mm-hmm. on a throne. Um, so just that kind of humanism. Um, I didn't get, I understand when you say like a lot of people like the help or hidden figures, the white savior syndrome, I didn't get that. Um, I think some of the controversy stemmed from some of Don Shirley's family. Um, it did. came out was like, yeah, yeah, didn't really agree with the way the film was portrayed and how close um, Lip actually made their friendship. So right. maybe that was some of the controversy. But overall, I didn't think it was a bad movie. I thought his, I thought the, the, the character Don Shirley wasn't necessarily your stereotypical, like he was gay, he was quiet. Mm-hmm. He hadn't eaten fried chicken. That's just a, a, that's just like un-American to me. If you ask yeah, me. that had nothing to do with me. Black. Well, he yeah, he was, <laughs> he was a bit provincial, right? Like uh, he, um, yeah, like you said, he didn't eat fried chicken. He was always wearing a suit and like had the glasses. He was a uh, an academic, you know. He's a doctor of music, right. classic classic pianist. Um, <laughs> you reminded me of something, you know, when you were talking about how they have that scene where Tony Lips playing, like, is he even playing like Little Richard or something? Yes, Little Richard. Yes, Little Richard. And uh, and yeah, and uh, Don doesn't know <laughs> Little Richard, and and Tony says, "Man, I'm blacker than you." <laughs> you reminded me of um, what's the name of that show that's on HBO right now? Uh, it's about like New York in the '70s. Um, Oh shoot! I know what you're talking about about like the porn the industry, deuce. the sex worker industry. Yes. The deuce. Yes. yes, the deuce. The deuce. Yes. I remember there's. I I haven't watched much of that, admittedly, but I remember there was a scene in the first episode where one of the main characters, is it the deuce? It might have been another show. Anyway, it, it doesn't matter what show it was. There's this classic Italian guy, and he's talking to a younger black musician, and in the <laughs> in the scene, the black musician goes something like, "Man, like." how do you know all this? It's almost like you're black. And the guy is, hey, Italian. And I'm curious, because like, obviously Tony Lip is this like Italian guy from the Bronx. I'm curious for your thoughts on this idea that like Italian culture and Italians just as human beings sort of embody maybe some like elements of blackness, if that, whatever, whatever that even means. So and like particularly in New York, um, if we're talking, just a little history breakdown for you. So a lot of immigrants from Italy and Ireland came over. They were kind, they were considered lower class citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, we talked. were often treated and, and like you would consider treatment of the, the things that um, Black Lives Matter talk about today are things that they talked about in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Er, right, in the early 20th century. Even in the movie Green Book, um, the guy actually called him like a, I don't want to repeat it, but it's like a, a slang word for, yes, you know, for Italian. A, yes, um, a low-class Italian person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, and that's when Tony punched him in the face and they both got arrested. Uh-huh. But um, that's how people of Irish and Italian descent were viewed coming into the country mm-hmm. as, yeah. you know, as generations progressed and Italians became, uh, you know, police officers officers no no i'm sorry firemen and irish people became police officers Mm -hmm. i might have that i might have that flip but as time progressed they were it was a lot less of that but even through the 50s and 60s it was like that so i think in an oppressed people there are similarities interesting that's where the similarities come from i just always like that line like Yeah. yeah that made me out really laugh when um it's like this scene, like you said, you know, are you sure you're not black? And I goes, hey, Italian. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, overall, I kind of thought Green Book, like I, I know that there were there was controversy from um, Don Shirley's family and probably some of that is warranted. But I didn't think that the film was uh, like misguided or clunky and in, in, in how it handled the dynamics of Tony Lip and Don Shirley and, and the race, the racial issues. Yeah. I, you know what? There are very, there are very few autobi- I'm sorry, biographical films to me that don't necessarily take a lot of poetic license, you know, right. yeah. um, and, and, and try other outside of, I think Malcolm X pretty much st- stuck to 
the um, Alex Haley book really closely mm-hmm. um, outside of using other names. I think some of the names might have been changed for the film because some of the people are real in Alex Haley's book. But other than that, it stuck pretty close. And I didn't really hear a lot of things from Malcolm X's family or people who knew him that said, yeah, this is incorrect. Um, but a lot of times you'll see these autobiographical, I keep saying autobiographical, these biographical films that, ha- that have real people. And it's like, nope, that's not right. So right. that's just a part of it. But I, I, I was surprised that I enjoyed it. Like it, it, it really, to me, it, wasn't, me too. it was like a yeah. slow start, but mm-hmm. I was really surprised. I, it was a good film. Me too. I remember my mom telling me about it, uh, like probably in December or something like, but before, I don't know, it may have been after it won Best Picture, she, but she told me she really liked it. And I kind of was like, you know, my mom's older, so she wasn't aware of like the woke point of view on it, that it was like yeah. controversial that it won. So I was kind of like, uh, you know, we'll see. But I watched it on an airplane uh, late last year. And yeah, I was kind of surprised that how much I enjoyed it too. I didn't, I didn't think uh, that the controversy was, um, I, I thought maybe it was a little bit overblown. Yeah, it's a possibility. We do that these days. Sometimes we do, yes. Uh, Thank you, William. You know what? William threw that at us. Yeah, yeah. I always appreciate it, William. Can't wait for your next one, man. You had mentioned before, Shakisha, uh, Irish and Italian background or people coming over in in the 19th and 20th centuries, and that is appropriate because now it's time for our main segment. And uh, as you may know, Shakisha, I do have some Irish blood in me. I uh, do come from that background. Uh, but today we're talking about family gatherings and what the difference or, you know, our memories of family gatherings for me and and for you and sort of comparing and contrasting what those were like. Um, I'm excited about it because I think this is going to be the type of conversation where you and I just sort of get to like really get into it. I don't have a lot of notes. I'm just going to go from recollection and, uh, we're going to have a chance to just kind of like be us and talk, which I always enjoy. I do too. Let's do it. So do you want to tell me what we, we had agreed age 10 was what we were thinking? Yes. Do you want to tell me about uh, like what comes to mind for you when I say, tell me about a family gathering at the Shakisha Williams house when you were 10 years old? Okay. So, <laughs> so my family pretty much all lived in the same building at one point or another. So we're in Harlem. My elementary school was literally across the street from the house. Um, I grew up a Jehovah's Witness, so we didn't celebrate, like, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas. We didn't celebrate birthdays. So there was never that element. Um, When my aunt would cook, my aunt who lived next door to me, like, literally, I'd walk out my door, and I didn't even have to come all of the way out of the door to knock on her door, would cook Thanksgiving dinner and I would take a plate and come back into the house. Like I'd get the plate and then come back home. Like it wasn't a full on celebration, but when my family got together, we were off the chain. (laughs) Oh, I think there was always a lot of laughs. We're very, we were very loud. Like my, my great grandmother lived above me. My grandfather lived on the second floor. My uncle lived like across the hall from my grand, my great grandmother, um, my aunt and my mom lived in another apartment next door. It was just like every all of us in one building. And yeah. So it was set the stage for me. Were you guys, were you guys like in an apartment together? Were you in a courtyard? So it would always start with you know somebody would. So my uncle, who I really adored, sweet guy, um, quiet. Um, my grandmother always said he was funny, which in in old people talk mm-hmm. I mean to today. But he was in the closet because he's a black man. You yeah, know? we talked about him on um, I can't oh, remember which episode yeah. it was. Uh, we did. We did. Oh, uh, on our episode about Marsha P. Johnson. Yes, we did. Um, and every single time, every single time, he would come by. <laughs> he'd be drunk because that's how he <laughs> dealt with life. And always off the hook, telling his stories loud, stumbling. He was the he was the epitome of what you would think a drunk uncle would look like. Talking loud, chatting loud, and everything sounded like an argument. It was all love. Yo, Elnora, what you doing? What you doing? You cooking tonight, Elnora? Elnora, get out of here. Your drunk ass. What you doing? Boy, sit down before you fall hurt yourself. Here come Mama Seal. My, that's my great-grandmother. And mm-hmm. like, what y'all doing down here? 
And I'm just sitting, uh, like, watching all of this take place. And that was, like, a family gathering. Like, them loud talking, laughing, joking, and just kind of, yeah. My grandmother kept Harvey's bristle cream. She loved that. My great-grandmother drank um, wild Irish rose, which is basically basement water. Um, and I don't know what my uncle drank. He just came pre-drunk. So right. Three of them drinking. Um playing cards and eating various snacks. That's what I remember. So what were you, what were you guys eating? Like my my grandmother was a jerky, like she loved beef jerky. She was a woman who was as you call me fancy, she was fancy but chewed tobacco, which is really weird. That's a that's um, an interesting thing to pull off, being fancy and chewing tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> that's hard, that's hard. If you can balance those two, well, you you got something there. You got a talent. <laughs> tobacco and spit in this big kind of like thing she you know like a kool-aid thing with a twisty with a twisty top just spitting that and put it back um i think my family you know all of them were from this like the the older folks were all from the south and had grown up uh my great-grandmother grew up in north carolina my grandmother in georgia um and all of us kind of coming together i'd hear stories about when my family was young. I'd hear stories about my grandma was a fighter. She loved to scrap. So she loved to tell me the scrapping stories about whose ass she whooped. She loved those. <laughs> those were her favorites. Um, and sometimes she talked about when she got her ass whooped. But, you know, it was just those kinds of stories. And I think for my kids, that's what I miss for them, that that generation was the storytelling generation, that it wasn't just, you know, you could look on Facebook, you should check my Facebook feed. I think I got pictures of that. You know, it was more memories of right. them and when they were younger and raising their children and all that, um, that I remember most from my family gatherings. And the funny thing was, is my grandmother had a mouth on her. Ooh, she could curse. And ooh, she could tell somebody off. Before Martin Lawrence was closing the door on people's faces, that was Elnora Dennis. <laughs> she was quick to tell you, I'm not here for any of that. It's, I remember she told somebody, the, and like she got mad in the, the family gathering. She got mad at somebody and said, all right, you got to get out of my house. And they were standing there talking. She said, I need to take three steps back. And she slammed the door in their face. I was like, oh my That's gosh. Fun. Yep. So, so it was like a, a, a mosh pause of love, laughter, you know, and sometimes you get kicked out the house if you said the wrong thing. You know, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of families, I think. I, I, I feel like I could definitely ascribe some of those qualities <laughs> to my family gatherings. When I was about yours, man. Yeah, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking like, okay, the memory I have of, and like, I have a lot of good memories of family get-togethers, but I was thinking about um, St. Patrick's Day party, right? I said growing up, uh, I, well, you know, I have Irish blood. I, I uh, That's part of my, like, ancestry. But, you know, what's funny is uh, growing up, like, my mom's side of the family, which uh, their last name was Nevins, so... That's an Irish name, and we really identified with like that part of ourselves. I've mm -hmm. since learned I did an ancestry uh, maybe two years ago. I've since learned that I'm actually more German than I am Irish, which I thought oh, was wow. yeah. And uh, I knew that I was German, but I never, it never occurred to me that uh, my last name, my you know, my dad's last name, Dinger, my name is uh, is actually German. So uh, funny enough, we had these families, these like gatherings where we were like really blowing out for like. Irish and uh, me myself, I'm actually more German than I am Irish. But I was thinking of St. Patrick's Day parties. Uh, my uncle Johnny used to have parties at uh, his house in South Jersey, and he had like a pretty. He had a, a one-story house, but it was on like an acre of property. So he had like a really big yard and just a lot of space. And my mom's side of the family was pretty big. My mom had uh, six sisters and no, I'm sorry, five sisters and two brothers. And all of them had kids also. So my Uncle Johnny used to have these parties where we, we, we would have, like, 60 people come to the house. Uh, you know, 60, 70 people. Uh, like, extended family coming. People from uh, North Jersey and, like, you know, distant cousins and stuff. Um, of course, it was St. Patrick's Day, so it was always in March. Uh, and I always, like, I can remember... Watching March Madness on TV a lot, you know, I was definitely way into sports when I was a kid. Um, yeah. 
So that was always on the TV. It was always like top 40 on the radio. Like, you know, uh, you're thinking mid 90s. So like what's popular on radio at that time? Yeah. Whatever it was, is what was on, on the, on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, you know, you know, we used to do like the Irish potatoes and, uh, the like corned beef and cabbage and all the classic, like St. Patrick's day fair. Um, I remember my uncle being out on the grill, like cooking, doing, you know, like hot dogs and hamburgers and stuff. Um, but my favorite was at the end of each of these parties, uh, my uncle had this like giant fire pit where we'd always build a really big bonfire and just kind of like hang out for the night, um, you know, telling stories, uh, just like bullshitting. Yeah. Those, the bonfire to me is like what I always think of when I think of like good family memories. Cause that was something that we did, at least on my mom's side of the family a lot. I feel like a lot of nights would end that way. Wow. And like, honestly, there is, you know, so when you think European dishes, you really can't get, corned beef and cabbage and potatoes wrong like it's always a, it's always a knockout of the park <laughs> that's right and i will say there was there was like potato salad and stuff but it wasn't potato salad with like raisins in it i never like <laughs> i don't understand how that's a thing about that, man. you already know I'm well aware. I'm well aware of my people's reputation with potato salad. But I will say the potato salad we had at these gatherings is pretty solid, you know. Maybe not as good as yours, but uh, pretty good. No raisins, at least. All right. So do you remember when we had, like, kind of a, a potluck and one of our friends, Darcy, uh, actually was like, let me make the potato salad. Oh, and yeah. It like, and it was like, <laughs> All right, Darcy. Okay, if you make the potato salad, she's like, so, "Oh, girl, I already know what the reputation yeah. is." For the people who don't know Darcy, <laughs> she's like a. And uh, she did a really good job. It was yeah, really good. It. I was like, okay. For the people who don't know, Darcy was a uh, or is. She's since moved away from New York. And uh, Darcy, if you ever listen, we miss you. Um, but she is like a white woman in her forties, very like hippie-ish. Is that? How, would you say that's a fair description? Jesus. Fancy liberal feminist goddess. Yeah, yeah she's awesome. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, she wanted to make potato salad, and uh, you and her had to have a conversation about. It. <laughs> right. It was a. It was a. It was a thing. It was a real thing. I was like, okay. She said, no. I already know what you're thinking. I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah. she, she threw it out the water. We all ate and we had a good time. And yes. Yeah, that was um, that was fun. I think um, for you because you grew up in the 90s, like, getting together with the family, like, the cousins and stuff, like, did you all tell, like, were there a lot of stories of when your father was this or when your mom was this? Was it a lot of that going on? Uh, yeah, there was a fair amount of that. Um, I honestly, like, I feel like it was more, so uh, I was on the younger end of, uh, the cousins, but I have like, I can't tell you the exact number, but I must have like at least 25 cousins on that side of the family. Like, because my mom, my mom had so many siblings and they all went on to have kids. Like I just, that side of the family is really big. Um, and I feel like a lot of it was, uh, early on, like if we're talking age 10, to be honest, um, I was shielded from a lot of the like adult conversations. You know, my cousins were probably like the, so my cousin Shaheen and I were like, if I was 10, he would have been probably 13. And then the next oldest was like 18 or 19. So yeah. we oh, were sort of, yeah. we were sort of like cut off from a lot of the adult interaction, I feel like at that time. Yeah. Um, but even as we got older, I feel like I was always hanging out with my cousins more. So it wasn't a lot of like, your mom was this way or your dad is this way. It was more stories about just them, I guess, mm -hmm. and maybe things that their parents did. Um, that was like when, uh, you know, when my dad was, my dad, as you know, Shikishi passed away, uh, it would be seven years ago this year when he was, uh, sick, he was sick for a couple of years before he died. I, that was something that I did a lot of because I felt like I didn't have a lot of stories about like, Oh, your mom was this way or your dad was this way when I was a kid. So I started asking him a lot of questions about when he was younger, actually, that was when I started to, and I was, you know, he, I was in my mid twenties then. So. 
Right. Well, I think honestly, it's better when you're older to hear that stuff because you can relate it back to like it. it you can relate to it in a different way. Yeah, like, I agree. Yeah. Was very, she was very transparent about life and things. But as a kid, I really couldn't conceive of some of the stuff she would tell me. I think she, my grandmother always had this idea that she was going to die before I became an adult. So she wanted to fit everything in as quickly as possible. So she really was very transparent with me. I wish she was more in a lot of other ways, you know, when it came to dealing with love matters and stuff like that. But as far as, like, her journey, she was always, like, very upfront about, you know, whatever she was growing up or however she was as a young person or what to expect out of life. Um, but as an adult, it would have been nice to hear those things because then I could go, oh, my gosh, you know, and kind of relate it to my situations now. Um, so that was kind of, that's kind of dope that you were able to even have that conversation or those conversations with him. Yeah, it was definitely something that was active on my part. My dad was, um, not a big talker. I mean, he, he wasn't like actively withholding information, but he just wasn't a super conversational guy. So, but if you would ask him questions, then you could get him going and start getting the answers. So I remember I made it a point to sort of start asking him stuff as like, I started to suspect like, oh, this might not turn out um you know how we're hoping and i that's actually a a regret i have with uh you know i was talking about my mom's side of the family and uh, my grandparents were of course coming to these saint patrick's day parties uh but my grandfather died when i was like 19 and that was one of my regrets actually is that i didn't really have a chance to sort of talk to him more in depth before he went yeah Yeah. What what would you keep for your own family like if you decide to have children what would you part of those things would you keep for them like the traditions oh uh you know i think probably we would still celebrate saint patrick's day i do think that's fun um i love like family gatherings where you can go out and like sort of be in a more uh like scenic place or like somewhere that's outside of the city yeah. uh, you know, going on, I used to, my family and I used to go up to the Poconos a lot, the mountains uh, in Pennsylvania. And like, but that was always fun sort of out in nature. And we, I remember doing bonfires there too. So I think like that escape from the urban life is yeah. uh, maybe something that I could see wanting to do if, yeah. uh, if I ever did have kids. I don't know if that's going to happen for me though, if I'm being honest, Shakisha. I don't blame you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Hit it, no kids. I understand. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's just uh, insane. I I totally understand. I'm just it's a hard time. Yeah, kids. yeah. Yeah, absolutely every day. So, it, yep, nope, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, what I wanted to ask you was like, uh, you know, before we wrap up here, uh, I've really enjoyed talking about just sort of going back to simpler times and thinking about when we were younger. Uh, when I ask you this question, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What is the the your favorite food or the food you most remember from when you were younger? Uh, my this is gonna be horrifying, but my great grandmother used to make the most outstanding chitlins in the world. Oh my god, I used to like chitlins and chitlins, what are chitlins? is a uh, pig intestine. Oh, okay. And like when I grew up, I found out what it was and I was like, oh, no. But when I was a kid, Mama Seal would make the best damn chitlins. Like it would always be like a big, you know, deal because the cleaning process is so it used to come in this big literal like the buckets you see at um, Home Depot. You used Mm -hmm. to come in a Home Depot bucket size. But by the time you got through cleaning all of the chitlins, it would just be like a, a small pot full. Or like a, a regular, you know, the, the pot you boil your spaghetti noodles in, it'd yeah. be like half of that. Um, and the smell of clean, I remember them standing over and cleaning them and them, con- you know, conversing while they're cleaning. Um, but the, out- oh my God, I just remember I used to love chitlins when I heard they were making them. Oh my God. And lasagna was always my favorite. Mama Seal's chitlins. <laughs> Mama Seal's chitlins. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, you definitely picked up the lasagna uh, recipe from the fan because you you made some lasagna for for me. Uh, God, that must have been two months ago now, but uh, quite tasty, if I may say so myself. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. You know, for me, I think of uh, my mom's mashed potatoes. That would be the first thing that comes to mind. I, if I thought about it longer, I could probably tell you a food that maybe I like more, but my mom's mashed potatoes 
are the best in the world. No one can convince me otherwise. She does it. She does it right. Oh yeah, she does it right for sure. I mean, she gets them. They're so creamy and just like a ton of butter and salt. Uh, you know, it's it's simple, but it works. Like okay, no on like for real, for real. The next time your mother makes mashed potatoes, you got to put some in a freezer bag for me, and right. and we got to meet up because I because I'm a big potato lover too. That's yes. yeah, that's a bang. All right, we'll do it. We'll do it. Yeah, yeah, let's get it. That's all for another episode of Shakisha and the White Boy. We're coming down to the end of the line here on season one. Uh, Shakisha, I too deeply love potatoes. It's, it's just so bad for me, but I love a good mashed potato, man. <laughs> I cannot blame you. I like them, I think, in all their forms, you know, yeah. mashed, um, mashed. fried. I love scalloped potatoes. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So good. French fries are delicious. Um, <laughs> we're going to stop there because I could go on about potatoes for okay. for another 10 minutes. Uh, we'd like to thank listener William Jensen for today's mailbag question. Sorry it took us a few weeks to get to it, William, but uh, keep sending them in. We appreciate it. Listener, yeah. if you'd like to be featured on an upcoming episode, uh, you can do so through our mailbag segment, and it's easy to do it. Simply email us a question, comment, or whatever else is on your mind, and we'll discuss it on an upcoming episode. Get at us at shakishaandthewhiteboy at gmail.com. Friendly reminder to like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. And while you're at it, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Insta at SATWB1. And we're also on Facebook. Uh, social media has been good lately, I think. I think so, too. Twitter is definitely lit. So keep them coming, folks. I can't wait to hear the next mailbag question. Twitter is lit. Shoutouts to Berberock for writing and producing our intro music. You can hear more of his music at www.brbrck.com. Shakisha, what are you doing with the rest of your day where you are not allowed to leave your home? I am finishing up a script and getting some stuff done, some editing. Yeah, I'm working, man. Productivity. I love it. Come on. I'm going to get back to slapping some bass here after I get done editing this episode. Slapping the bass. Slapping the bass, man. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all for this episode. Until next time. Bye.